background and stage set. So we decided, what is our stage missing? And we decided the ocean. And so we decided to bring the ocean and submarine. So submarine and ocean, that's what the stage was missing. Um, now actually, we've got VBS coming up next week. So uh, check out your bulletins if you've got kiddos that want to be involved in that. Um, it's going to be a lot of fun. I'm not going to be here, though. So I'm going to be with my high schoolers in Michigan. So it's going to be good. It's always good when I'm not there, right? So, hey, I just want to say, I know it's been said multiple times this morning, but happy Father's Day. Um, you know, we just really appreciate um, uh, just you guys, you dads out there. You know, we, biologically speaking, we all have one. So, uh, shout out to my own dad, who's not here, but he'll probably be listening to this later this week. So, I just want to say happy Father's Day to him. Um, you know, usually on days like Father's Day, Mother's Day, things like that, we, we gear the message towards that sometimes. Um, but sorry, that's not going to be the case today because our sermon is actually about a woman today who is an orphan. So <laughs> I promise it's relevant, okay? It, it is. So, um, but we're just excited to be able to celebrate that with you fathers today. So let's pray real quick. Father God, um, we just come to you today just repeating that last song, Father. We just want to bless your name. We just want to give you glory and bring you praise and just worship you for who you are and what that means for us, Father. Um, I really have nothing to offer anybody. Um, I have no, there's no hope that I, that I have or any promises I have that are worth anything to anybody. But God, the hope and promises we have in you are worth everything. So Father, I pray that that's what comes through this morning, through your word, and that you can just um, work in our hearts through your Holy Spirit, Father. So we just pray for you just to, to work in this place today. And we just give you glory, we give you praise, and we praise, pray these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so I uh, actually have confession time today, okay? So this is me um, going to confess something to you. You ready? I have never been to prison. I know. That, that might seem more, like, less of a confession and more of a brag and I'm actually a little disappointed that some of you seem surprised about that fact, so thank you for, thank you for the benefit of the doubt there. Um, but, but either way, I, I, maybe that makes you feel better about me being the young adult pastor. Maybe, maybe it doesn't. I don't know. Um, but, but you see, I, I have never been to prison personally. That's, that's not a part of my story. Maybe it's a part of yours. I don't know. Um, but that's, that's not really the point. Um, but, but I've never felt the, the weight of physical chains or the constraint of physical bars in front of my face. I've never been, been given a schedule that I don't have some say in. Uh, I've never been kept away from my family, my friends, my passions, my joys. But you see, that doesn't mean that I haven't been imprisoned in some way. You know, I'm, I'm a fallen creature. Um, I, I've sinned. I have been confined to the powers and retributions of those sins in the flesh. And I have fallen under the spell of the flesh that led me to believe that I had some say in my own goodness. And I, I do this through thoughts like, you know, I'm, I'm a good guy, right? You know, I, I do a lot of good things. And even though I make mistakes from time to time, I, I'm pretty good, right? And this line of thinking has led me, just like it's led many of you, to dance this little dance where we, we think we could somehow justify ourselves, justify our own souls before our, our, our almighty God. And I'm telling you this, that, that this type of thinking is a prison for our hearts. Romans chapter 7, verse 20 through 25, maybe you've heard this before. It's kind of one of those tongue twister passages. Um, yeah, but it says this, it says, Now I do what I do not want to do. It is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. 
So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. Has anybody been there? Anybody been right there? I know I have. And, and it traps us. You know, it confines us. It, it binds us in this, this sense of hopelessness. Because let's be honest with ourselves, guys. None of us are good but by the grace of God. And this idea of, of being imprisoned really got me thinking. And, and like I said, I don't have experience with it. But I, I just got kind of stuck on this thought of what it, what it means to be trapped in a prison. And so I decided to get online and just to see what I could find out about, about that experience, about that culture. And what I found was, were some poems and some writings of these inmates who were on death row. Okay, and I know these are really happy thoughts, right? But, but this was fascinating to me because here were these men and women who knew they were going to die because of their transgressions, because of their sins, because of what they had done, and their grief was being poured out through these words and through these writings. And I was, I was reading through there. I was just, I was kind of taken, taken aback by it, and I, I found this one specifically, and it just, to me, it just, I don't know, it just stood out to me, so I wanted to share that with you this morning. This was a, a man who was on death row. This is what he wrote. I am but the ghost of my past self, an empty vessel, a bare chamber. Happiness has abandoned me, so I survive on sorrow and I live in grief. I've lost the concept of reality to feel whole. I wish to feel alive, anything but more sadness. Love and joy are but a distant memory, and those memories cause me so much pain. My heart carries the weight of guilt, regret, and loss, and this punishment is my curse for all of my wrongdoings. My heart was fractured so very long ago, and only I can mend it, yet I choose not to. I've never been in prison before. <laughs> and, but I, you know, I've never been on death row, except for the fact that we all will face death eventually, so I, I guess we're all kind of on death row. No, happy thoughts. But I couldn't help relating these words to the pain that so many of us feel under the weight of our flesh. A ghost of who you used to be, empty, bare, bearing the weight of all of your guilt, regret. Can anyone else here find some harmony with the words that this man said? Unfortunately, we all can. You see, we all know all too well the picture of a life that is governed by the flesh. A life that is tormented like the words of, that we just read out of Romans 7. We do what we don't want to do. We have a war waging within us that screams at our hearts and our minds. And, and it, that is waging, uh, it's a war waging of the flesh that, and it's crying out for our attention and our allegiance. And we're pulled every direction. And this is a war that's old as time itself. One that goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. We find it all throughout Scripture. We've all been there, and this type of war, it just seems to creep up on us again and again. And I say we over and over again, because this is an experience that we all share with one another. Because we have all sinned. We have all fallen short of the, way, uh, the glory of God. We've all been there. So you aren't alone. The person on your left's there, the person on your right's there. 
If you're on the end of the rows, I don't know what to tell you. But, but just that fact helps us realize that we can understand this together. You know, we've been going through the book of Esther last few weeks, and we're going to continue to do that today. So if you want to, if you have your own Bibles, you want to open up and follow along, we're going to be in Esther chapter 2. And I just want to recap a little bit for all of you um, what's been going on. And to do that, I just want to read um, about some of the characters. If you guys remember, Esther is an allegory, okay? And if you remember, like, I don't know, seventh grade English class, an allegory is, is a story that, that means something much deeper than what you kind of see on the page, right? It kind of represents something deeper. Um, and so if we kind of look at these characters, um, we can kind of look at that deeper meaning behind them. First character that we come across is a man named King Xerxes. Maybe you've also heard the, the term Ahasuerus, King Ahasuerus. Same guy, okay? They just pronounce differently, much differently. Uh, it's just different. Uh, depending on your translation, you'll have different versions of it. But it is the same man. And King, uh, King Xerxes, like I'm going to refer to him today, represents the soul or the will. Okay, this is kind of the essence of a man uh, where thinking is done and decisions are made. Um, this is the part of the allegory that I know we can all relate to because we all have a soul, we all have a will of our own. And the thing about our, our soul, the thing about our will, is it's completely unique. No one has the same soul as, as another man or another person. You know, you may look like an, somebody, you know, I know it's Father's Day, maybe you have a son that, that looks a lot like you, or you have a father that you look a lot like. That's kind of how it is for me. I look a ton like my dad. Poor guy. Um, but, you know, this, it, we, we, we might be able to relate in some areas, but our soul, uh, even though it, it experiences similar things, they are unique to ourselves. Um, the king also reigned over a kingdom, and that kingdom represents our body or our life. Okay? The, this body and life is directed by the soul just as a king directs and leads his kingdom. Makes sense? Um, there's also a character named Haman, uh, which we're not going to talk about today, but it does play a big part in the story. And Haman represents the flesh. Okay, Steve, um, the last few weeks, talked about how the flesh, we can never improve the flesh. Okay, and it's always empty and we're always discontent in that. And we're going to talk about that a little bit today. But the flesh impacts the king's thinking, just like it impacts our own thinking, and it helps direct our wills according to its desires, okay? And the desires of the flesh are opposite of the desires of the spirit. Okay? Um, this impacts the kingdom, and it impacts our souls. Finally, there, there's a man named Mordecai, and we're going to talk a lot about Mordecai today, um, who represents the Holy Spirit. Okay? And as you see through the story, Mordecai, this Holy Spirit, refused to bow down to Haman, the flesh. Because the Spirit is the enemy of the flesh. So we're going to dive into our passage, starting in verse 1, chapter 2 of Esther. It says, Later, when King Xerxes' fury has subsided, we'll talk about that in a second, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. Then the king's personal attendants proposed, Let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm and bring all these beautiful young women into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the young, women who pleases the young woman who pleases the king to be queen instead of Vashti. This advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. Okay, so about two years earlier, um, just the previous chapter, but about two years earlier, the king had kicked out Queen Vashti for disobeying him, okay? He told her to do something, she didn't do it, he got mad, he kicked her out. Okay, he, you know, it might seem kind of harsh, but he's king, he can do whatever he wants, right? Um, but you get the sense that over the span of two years, King Xerxes probably began to miss Vashti, or at least that relationship that he had with her. 
Uh, and so he began seeking to replace her. Now, this doesn't mean that he wasn't still upset with Vashti or he didn't realize that this, a new queen could, could possibly disobey him, obey him and hurt him like she did. But he desired a deep, intimate relationship in his life, which is kind of ingrained to us as human beings. God created us that way. We desire these deep, intimate relationships. And over that two-year span, um, he had, king, the king had been at war. He'd been out there fighting, going through a lot of heartache, turmoil, a lot of stress. And, and, so, and he just didn't have any peace in his life. So there was something inside of him that longed for peace and for relationship. And we see it. We see this kind of coming out of him here as he desires a new queen. And I think one of the reasons that this is a part of who we are is because it's also a part of who God is. Okay, when we sin, God still desires a relationship with us. You know, when that relationship is right, it's a beautiful thing. Uh, but when it isn't, the desire for it is still there. And we can see that this is true for God because we can look at the cross. Okay, God sent Jesus to die for us so that we can exist in an intimate relationship with him even though we have sinned. And he didn't have to send Jesus. He wanted to. Because he desired that deep and intimate relationship with us. And it couldn't be so if, under our sinful nature. So he sent Jesus to be that sacrifice, to be that atonement. Keep going in verse 5. It says, Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jair, the son of Shemi, and the son of Kish who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive with Jehochin, king of Judah. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. Okay, so here we're introduced in to Mordecai, okay, which represents the Holy Spirit. And Mordecai had been exiled. Okay, this was done uh, by being cast out of the land, out of the kingdom, by the fleshly kings and leaders. But as you begin to see, and as we read this story, that even if the flesh casts out the spirit, which pretty much just means rejects its authority in their life, the spirit is still at work. The, fleshly, or the flesh really has no, no power over the spirit, just the influence on our souls which directs our lives, our own personal kingdoms, just like King Xerxes. Okay, we read in the story that Mordecai adopts Esther after her parents died. Now, when thinking of Mordecai as being the Holy Spirit, we begin to see this battle of identity within Esther. You know, she has her, her fleshly, you know, blood biological parents, even though they had died. But, but then she has this, this one, this, this man who had adopted her as his own. And, and what I want to focus on today is the freedom that comes from what Esther, from Esther doing just that, from being adopted into the Holy Spirit, into God. You know, Esther lived her life with, this, with the understanding that her true identity was that she was a daughter of the living Almighty God, Yahweh. She died to her fleshly identity and she held on to her adopted one. And that doesn't mean she, she acted like she didn't have an earthly family, even though that they, they had died. What it does mean, and what you're going to see in her life, is that her true authority and her true identity rests in the Holy Spirit living in and through her. And you're gonna, we're going to take a look at just the freedom that that gives her. And I think this is an excellent picture for us in our own lives, because God desires to adopt us into a perfect relationship with Him. Galatians chapter 4, 4-7 through 7 says this, 
But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth a son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of the son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Happy Father's Day. God sent his son Jesus to die for us so that the spirit could come into our hearts and adopt us as God's true children. Children, him, our actual father. Heirs to the throne through God himself. And this isn't just some metaphor, something we say to like make ourselves feel better. Like this, this is God's word, this is truth. This is what happens when the spirit comes into your life. 1 John 3, 1 says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Happy Father's Day. When we allow God to come into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, we are his children, and he is our Father. He is our Abba. It's something very intimate and very, very real. And we see in his teachings, the teachings of Jesus something similar. Um, Luke chapter 14, 26 says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father or mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciples. Seems kind of harsh. Um, but as we read the next verse, Jesus says, And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. So it's not that we actually hate our mothers and fathers. That would be the worst Father's Day message ever given. But rather it's about us realizing that our new birth through the Spirit is in Christ, and that is our true identity, not our identity in the flesh. We must be willing, just as Jesus says here, to pick up our cross, which means self-denial in the flesh, which leads to complete dedicated, dedication and um, willingness to uh, willing obedience to God. And this comes from a true sense of not only who we really are, but whose we really are. And that is God as our Father through the Holy Spirit that is Christ in you. Back to our text, we finally get to Esther here in verse 8. And as we're going to see in Esther, she does exactly what we just talked about, and she submits her life to her identity in the Spirit as an adopted daughter of in the story Mordecai, but for for the allegory's purpose, the Holy Spirit. Verse 8 says, uh, When the king's orders and edict had be, been proclaimed, many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Esther also was taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who had, in, had charge over the harem. She pleased him and won his favor. Immediately he provided her with her beauty treatments and special food. He assigned to her seven female attendants selected from the king's palace and moved her and her attendants into the best place in the harem. Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Every day he walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. Before a young woman's turn came to go to, in to see King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women, six months with oil and myrrh and six months with perfumes and cosmetics. And this is how she would go to the king. Anything she wanted was given to her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go there and in the morning return to another part of the harem to take care of Shazgaz, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not return to the king unless he was pleased with her and summoned her by name. When the turn came for, for Esther, the young woman Mordecai had adopted, to go to the king, she asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the harem, suggested. And Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the tenth month, the month of Tibet, in the seventh year of his reign. 
Now the king was attracted to Esther more than any of the other women, and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and his officials. He proclaimed a holiday throughout the province and distributed gifts with royal liberty. When the virgins were assembled a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, but Esther had kept secret her family background and nationality, just as Mordecai had told her to do so. So that becomes relevant later in the story. For she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions as she had done when he was bringing her up. Okay, so Esther gives us a picture of a life that is not governed by the flesh, but rather a life of adventure, living in the freedom of the Holy Spirit for which she was adopted into by God. She kept this up even when she inherited a fleshly kingdom as queen. She remained true to that identity in her life. And here's one thing I know without any doubt. I know this. I'm one of you. And that's that deep down inside, each of us desire this exact thing in our lives. And we see this through the king in the story. There, there was something about Esther that was so attractive to the king that he wanted to, he wanted to be a part of it. Just as we desire to live this kind of life ourselves. Yet we choose so often as I, not to. And, and I talked about prisons earlier, and that's exactly what the flesh and sin are. The flesh is heavy, guys. It's a burden that carries so much weight that it causes people to collapse and be destroyed. But we choose those prisons over a life in the Spirit. You know, we've all sinned, and we all know the burden and guilt from that sin and how it can overcome us. Satan just loves to shovel it on our backs until we break. You know, we try to manipulate it sometimes. We try to put the weight in a way that we can carry it with us without causing too much pain or damage. It's kind of like if you've ever been hack, uh, hiking with like a really heavy backpack on, and you know, sometimes the weight gets kind of awkward, so you shift it around to try to make it even so you can carry it easier. You know, sometimes we even try to redeem it ourselves to somehow make it good, or at least convince ourselves that it's good. But it's, it'll never happen because living in the flesh will never fill our souls in the way that they were created to be filled. And that's why, whether we admit it or not, this type of life is so attractive and at the same time so offensive. I want to look at some specifics of these sins and the prisons that they create for us. The first is pride. You know, pride is a hunger that won't ever be quenched. The more, we feed, the more we feed it, the more it grows. And until we surrender it over to God, it won't ever stop. And it's a prison we'll never escape. Lust. You know, lust is a cancer and our hearts are the hosts. It slowly takes over and gains control of it until there's no life left in it. And until we surrender it over to God, we're never going to escape that prison. Greed. Greed is a blinder that shades our eyes to reality. It changes how we perceive and view everything, and it destroys all value by replacing it with the false sense, this false idol of money, which really has new, no true value in God's kingdom. But until we hand it over to God and allow the Spirit to free us from those chains of greed, we will continue to be blind in that prison, and we'll never be able to see out of it. You know, I could keep going on and on, talking about the different sins and the prisons they put us in, but I think you guys get the point. And you know. You've felt it. You know those prisons. But 
what we need to realize is that these are not a part of the life living in the, a life lived in the Spirit. They are outside of the Spirit, and they are a part of the flesh. And the Spirit and the flesh cannot go together because they are in direct opposition of one another. And here's the truth. The life outside of the Spirit of God is empty. No matter how much we try to fill it, no matter what we try to put into it, a life outside of the Spirit of God is empty. We become orphans without hope. But within the Spirit, it is complete. And we are adopted as sons and daughters into God's kingdom as his very own children. And we can see through this life of Esther as we see, uh, we can see this in her life as we see the Spirit alive in her and what that brings to her. So I want to take a look at a few of those things this morning about how we can see the Holy Spirit working in Esther's life and how we can see what this brings to her because it's what it can bring to us as well. The first is that she is raised by the Holy Spirit, by Mordecai. Verse 7 states, Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. You see, Esther grew and matured under the leading of Mordecai, the Holy Spirit, rather than the world. Uh, a life in the Spirit is one who grows in maturity from the truth of God through the leading of the Holy Spirit and is not influenced by the leading of the flesh. Rather than being pulled all over the place by the flesh, we find our influence from God alone. Sounds pretty good, right? The second is that she obeyed the teachings of the Holy Spirit in her life, of, of Mordecai. Verse 10 says, Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Like I said, that becomes relevant later. It's very relevant, actually. But rather than feeling the pressure to follow the leadings of the flesh, when you live in the Spirit, you are directed to follow the leadings of the Holy Spirit. And, and Esther had to feel that pull of the flesh all the time, probably, you know, especially when she inherited some fleshly power and reign as queen. She had to feel that pull of the flesh, of, of power and greed and pride and all these things. I mean, the king chose her, right? Out of all these women, these chosen women, he chose her. But she followed the Spirit instead. You know, the ramifications of this are huge because it puts the fleshly desires that we have and that we are tempted with in their place, which is far from the heart of God, which means far from the heart of someone in whom God's Spirit dwells. A life in the Spirit is one that overcomes the teachings and temptations of the flesh. Anybody else here with me when I say yes, please? Third is that the Holy Spirit... Um, is constantly at work in her life. We see Mordecai is constantly work in, in Esther's life. Verse 11, it said, Every day he walked back and forth near the courtyard to the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. A life in the Spirit is a life where the Spirit of God never abandons you. Did you guys catch that? And God, God won't abandon you. It's an ongoing relationship that sticks with you no matter what the circumstances are because our God's faithfulness is not dependent upon our circumstances. He's always faithful, period. That's who he is. The Holy Spirit lives inside of the followers of God and is constantly at work within us just as it is here with Esther. And if we just think about that, isn't the faithfulness of God amazing and something you want to be able to count on? You can and the fourth and final one I want to bring up is, is that the life that Esther lived was attractive to those around her. 
Okay, verse 15 says, When the turn came for Esther, the young woman Mordecai had adopted to go to the king, she asked for nothing other than uh, what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the harem, suggested. And Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. There is something different that stands out about a person who is living in the Spirit. Have you guys experienced that before? You just see it in somebody? You see it in their eyes? You see it in the way they, they handle things? Hopefully you guys have mentors in your life that you see that in. There's just something uh, attractive about it. Even direct opposition can't deny that there's something different and attractive about those people. That's why the world's so curious about it. You know, we live in a world where there's a lot of hate, where there's a lot of prisons that people have trapped themselves inside of. And the fact that I read you a poem from a man who was on death row tells us that. We turn on the news and we hear things like the 49 victims who were murdered a couple weeks ago in Florida. Or, or, or there's other stories of, you know, of women and children who are being sold in and out of sex slavery, being completely stripped of their humanity because of the sins of man. I mean, this type of news is all around us. But if we were living in the Spirit, then we will stand drastically apart from this hate because the greatest commandment that Jesus ever gave us was to love to love God and to love others. And in a world of hate, that love stands out so drastically that it will be blinding to those who are shadowed in darkness and they won't be able to ignore it. We don't need more complaining. We don't need more people up in arms because a law is passed that goes against what they believe. We don't need more people fighting over different political stances. What we need is more love, and that love can only be found in and through Jesus Christ. What we can see from the life of Esther is that a life in the Spirit is so much greater than any other, outside, uh, any other life outside of the Spirit, and that dramatically impacted the people around her. A life of being adopted into freedom is what God has always had, had designed for you and for me, not confined as an orphan in the prison of our flesh. That's not his intention. That's not what we were created for. And rather than hiding from that life in the Spirit, attempting to manipulate it, trying to control it, uh, we as as the adopted sons and daughters of Jesus Christ himself should embrace it with everything that we are, and we should never, ever look back. Because it's good. It's better. It's not even close. So I want to challenge you with two things today. One's personal, one's for us as a church. The first is I want you to examine your life, examine your own heart, and I want you to ask the hard questions and really see if you are living for the Spirit in your life. For some of you, that might be asking Christ into your life for the first time. For others, maybe you've done that, but you're just holding on to some areas of your life that, that you, you want to still have some say in. You want to have some control. You want to stay in that prison. And, and, you know, if, if you aren't living in the Spirit in some of those areas, I hope that the Spirit will lead you to turn those areas of your life over to God because I promise you this, you can continue to hold on to them, you can continue to try to control them, and you can try to make them better, but a life outside of the Spirit is empty and it's never going to happen. But the one with the Spirit is complete, just as we see in the life of Esther. And, and in Christ, you are complete. So stop living like you aren't. Why settle for less than the latest, or I'm sorry, than for the, this life that God tells you and that, this, that God desires for you? 
When you are living in the Holy Spirit, that Spirit of God will continue to work in your life, just as we see in this story. And once you bond your identity with that will, that is where true contentment is found. That is where true peace is found, just like King Xerxes was seeking out. And we see such a great picture of this with the life of Esther. And the second challenge I have for you today is for us as a body of believers. And that is to live out this adventure of following the Holy Spirit in our world and to live it out as loud as we can. Because there is true life that this world so desperately needs that is only found in Jesus Christ. This world needs more love. What a calling we have to just go and love people. It's literally the greatest job description in the world. That's our purpose. That's what we're called to do. It's like, oh, here's what it means to be a Christian. Go love people. I mean, what a great opportunity it is that that's what God calls us to do. And we have a great God who's made it possible. He's made it possible by him first loving us. We're called to share this hope, the only true hope with the world around us. And in the spirit, we have no right not to. And we can see that this broken world needs Jesus desperately. So let's be that church. Be that body of believers who shows this world the love of God through a life with his spirit living through us. I told you uh, I'd never personally been to prison. I have lived, but, but I have lived in the prison of the flesh, just like all of us have. But God's great love for his people doesn't want us to stay there. And so he sent his son, Jesus. And he has adopted us into the freedom of his grace through a life living in the spirit. So let's first live that out in our own lives. And then let's show people that there's so much more to live for than, a, than the prisons of our flesh. There is freedom and the Holy Spirit that comes from the adoption that God grants us through his son, Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we just thank you for being such a good God, for being such a good father. We celebrate Father's Day, but you, you are the ultimate example of what it means to be a good father, and that's exactly what you are. Lord, we don't always live our lives with the realization or with the acknowledgement that you are God and that you are our Father and that you are calling to us to something different. Father, many of us in this room are holding on to our flesh. We're holding on to this prison. We don't want to let go of it. But Father, you have broken those chains. You have opened those doors. And you've done that through your own blood, through your own sacrifice. So Father, I pray for each of us individually that we we let go of those prisons. We choose to live a life in the, in the Spirit and just watch the adventure that you take us on. Father, I pray for us as a church that we just stand out drastically in this world, that we're not afraid to live out love and live it loud because this world needs it. And you desire for this world to know it. So, Father, I pray, pray as, as a body of believers at Rimrock Church that that's what we're a part of. We, we just live out the Spirit in our lives, and we just show this world what it means to love and to be loved. A love that only you as a perfect Father can provide for us. Father, we just thank you this morning. We pray that you are just glorified through us, and we just thank you for your Son, Jesus, and that you just made this life possible through him. We pray these things in his name. Amen. You guys are dismissed. <laughs>